Eternal God, our thoughts are not your thoughts, and our ways are not your ways. And so we open our lives to you in prayer because of this difference. We who are made in your image and created to embody your presence in the world have too easily chosen another image and another embodiment as our way of being. And so we rely on your unrelenting purpose paired with your ever-merciful way to remind us of who we are and whose we are. That just as the rain and snow fall to the earth and accomplish their purpose, so we might also be present in your world as earthen vessels of nourishing love and steadfast compassion. God, we see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds we hear. So be thou our vision, O God, that we might see the world through the lens of your justice and the specter of your kindness. Refine and reform us, that we might listen less to siren songs of vanity and ego and listen more for the still small voice of your calling us to care for those whose voices have been diminished. Gracious God, amidst all that impresses and overwhelms, we would remember that it is with deeds of love and mercy that your heavenly realm comes to dwell on earth. No less vital than the prophetic word spoken from the mountaintop is the cup of cold water shared on the street corner. Both important both expressions of your way among us in this world that is ever and always yours from the very first day of creation and to the close of the age. And so, O oh God, create in us a clean heart and put a new and right spirit within us. Through the abiding love of Christ, we pray. Amen.
according to Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, the very, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God.
on our recent trip to Utah, we drove mostly on the back roads. Driving through northwest Oklahoma and then into the Panhandle and then across southeast Colorado, the landscape was stark and in some ways beautiful in its vast expanse. But it was also a bit overwhelming. Thoughts meandered between the magnificence of the land and the Jode family making their way west, as told in Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. To be sure, it can still be a hard scrabble existence. And when the temperature outside is 108 degrees, thoughts turn from novels and agriculture to practical matters like, will our engine overheat and what will we do if we break down out here? With all the many wonderful conveniences of modern life, one can still feel vulnerable. After a while, in the quiet of the car, the tires humming on the road, other thoughts do begin to stir. You begin to see beyond the self and ponder larger matters. You see the splendor of creation and the ever-evolving landscape, the survival of wildlife and vegetation growing from the barest of soil, the marvel of topping a hill and being able to see into the distance 50 miles at least. Whoever described that part of the world as the high plains got it exactly right. You can begin to feel small in such vast expanse. And then you remember that the land on which you are traveling is a tiny speck on planet Earth which is a tiny speck in the solar system, which is a tiny speck in the universe that is beyond our comprehension. Think about these kinds of things for too long and two things can happen. One, you are extraordinarily excited to see the sign for Dairy Queen in the next town. <laughs> or two, and maybe it's and too, your thoughts drift to the words of the psalmist who once wrote, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet, you have made them a little lower and the angels, and crowned them with glory and honor. The writer of the eighth psalm is saying that God, whose splendor and majesty is beyond understanding and whose creation is beyond comprehension, is also the God who remembers us and who entrusts to us what God has made, including the wonders of the world and caring for each other. It is at one and the same time humbling and hopeful. Watching the world go by, we realize that perspective can be one of the hardest things to keep in life. 
Balance is almost always a struggle, and certainly that's understandable. There are so many forces in life that demand our energy. There's the work we are called to do. There are times when caring for physical or emotional health is demanding. There are considerations of family members. There's the matter of personal finances. There are times when we deal with unimaginable loss or heartbreak. There is the constant pull of different philosophies and worldviews that are always trying to orient us in life. There are societal shifts and technological changes. To quote a Kevin Costner character from one of his movies, we're dealing with a lot of stuff here. <laughs> we always are. Which is why perspective is one of the hardest things to keep. As we made our way toward our destination in Utah, one of our stops was in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, at a quaint bed and breakfast owned by an 83-year-old man. As we were the only guests that night, we had the opportunity to talk with him on several occasions. He was in his 12th year as a widower. And for all his hard work and gregarious nature, there was a tinge of loneliness about him. Despite his loss, he had constructed his little slice of Eden on the side of the mountain, where the hummingbirds fed eagerly and the flowers bloomed prolifically and the nearby stream sang happily tumbling down the mountain. When asked if he ever grows used to the splendor of the mountains and the beauty of the place, he commented that he had been there for over 35 years and wakes up every morning as if it is, is his first morning there. A little later, we shared a wonderful breakfast that he had prepared, and he took the opportunity to offer his philosophy of life, which centered on a pyramid of success with, with the centrality of money being paramount. Money is powerful. It creates possibilities. We all know this and live this every day. In sharing his philosophy, he made a disparaging comment about the idea that money is the root of all evil. Now, that's the only time I offered a comment. He was, after all, our host, and we were his guests, and I didn't want any unforeseen charges on our bill. <laughs> so, what I simply said was that the quote from 1 first, from first Timothy is actually, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He paused for a second, said something along the lines of, well, maybe. We finished our delightful breakfast, and then we made our way to Park City for a week with family. After traveling and being in a resort kind of place a week ago, it's been interesting to come back to this week's gospel story. It's a parable about perspective and balance. 
As Luke tells the story, the setup for the parable is a dispute over inheritance. Oh boy. A younger brother is wanting the older brother to divvy up the family goods. It may seem strange to ask Jesus to serve as family arbiter, but it was common in the first century for rabbis to be asked to mediate in such matters. Rather than render a ruling, because as we know, Jesus seldom directly answers any question he's asked, he offers a story. It's a story about a good harvest from a productive farmer. Setting up the parable with a stern warning about greed and a reminder that life is about more than having things we want, Jesus describes a prudent and successful farmer who reaps a harvest far exceeding his best expectations because the land has produced abundantly. He immediately springs to action and he plans to build larger storage bins for his bumper crop, at which point he will be able to live off of the land's largesse. In many ways, we would consider his actions wise and responsible, and in one sense, they are. But we also know that any strength can become a weakness when perspective becomes unbalanced. As Jesus tells the story, it is not abundance that is the problem, it is his perspective that is the problem. We can always learn a lot by listening to how people use pronouns. As Jesus tells the parable, the successful man is entirely self-referential. He speaks only to himself, offers himself his own counsel, and then commends and reassures himself. In three verses, he makes at least a dozen references to self with the words, I, my, and soul. What is absent in the farmer's response is any expression of gratitude, any sense of any other who might have been part of the process, any consideration of God's perspective in his life. Rembrandt painted this story, depicting the man surrounded by books as a sign of wealth and knowledge, but with his focus on a single coin, unaware of a larger community or of God. His life curved in on himself. He is a man of abundance and depravity. Except for the light that is in the center of the picture, the mood is dark and somber. A farmer with a large harvest and a small outlook. Perspective, balance, is always so difficult to keep. We ponder several possibilities for this parable on perspective. To be sure Jesus employs hyperbole in telling the story of this successful farmer, but maybe that makes the parable more accessible. This is a parable that reaps 
by degrees. Its harvest is in inviting us to ponder our life's harvest. Nowhere does Jesus disparage the farmer's success nor the land's produce. His success is a tool that can be used for good, but it can also lead to isolation. And that, it seems, is the core of the problem because he is estranged from God and he's estranged from others. His primary orientation is self. He's lost any sense of his strength and power being used for anything beyond his own desire. Additionally, the parable addresses a mindset. There is no apparent recognition that his life, the land, the rain that falls, the seed, the mystery of growth is a gracious gift from God. There seems to be no recognition that he is connected to anything other than himself. And then the parable concludes with this dramatic tragedy. It's a stark reminder, and it's meant, I think, to foster perspective. The man with all his barns does not live through the night. The man with all his barns loses himself. Whose will they be? Because in his isolation, he has no one. The parable's perspective is that to be rich toward God is also to be enriching toward others. So what does a well-made life look like? Are we landowners answerable to no one? Are we servants in God's good fields? Author and columnist David Brooks, in something of a modern day adaptation of this parable, asks this question, is life a story or a game? Brooks sees life as a story in which we find things to love and commit to, a vocation, a spouse, a community. At times we flounder and suffer, but do our best to learn from our misfortunes, to grow in wisdom, kindness, and grace. And at the end, hopefully, we can look back and we can see how we have nurtured deep relationships and served a higher good. Counter to this perspective, Will Storr, whose writing Brooks does admire, argues that human beings are deeply driven by status. Status isn't about being liked or accepted, it's about being better than others, getting more. When people defer to us, offer respect, admiration, or praise, or allow us to influence them in some way, that's status. It feels good. Life, he says, is a series of games. There's the high school game of competing to be the popular kid. There's the lawyer game to make partner. There's the finance game 
to make the most money. There's the academic game for prestige. There's the sports game to show that our team is best. Even when we're trying to do good, we're playing the virtue game to show we are morally superior to others. Although Brooks disagrees with Storr's framework of life as game, he admits the gamer mentality Storr describes pervades our culture right now. Social media is a status game par excellence with its likes, viral rankings, and periodic cancel mobs. Vast partisan armies fight wars of recognition. Brooks observes, the status mad world that Storr describes is so loveless. It's a world I recognize, but not one I want to live in. Ultimately, games are fun, but gaming as a way of life is immature. Maturity means rising above the shallow desire for status that does not really nourish us. It's about cultivating the higher desires, the love of truth and learning, the intrinsic pleasure the craftsman gets in his work, which is not about popularity, the desire for a good and meaningful life that inspires people to commit daily acts of generosity. A very successful farmer takes inventory of his life. That's a good exercise. It's a good idea to take stock, to look around, to gain perspective, to see if what we say matters, matches with what we do. And when we do this kind of thing, Jesus, with a tenacious love that will not let us go, gives us very interesting balance sheet. <laughs>